following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. In our world today, one of the, especially for non-Christians, one of the things that's really difficult for them to understand about God is that, uh, you know, God is loving and good. If he really cares for people, as uh, scripture teaches, then how is it he could judge people? How is it he could send destruction upon them? And ultimately, how could God sentence them to eternal destruction? And a lot of uh, even Christians now are starting to argue, well, that, that couldn't be true of a good and loving God. God is good and loving. He would not let uh, the people he created fall into that kind of judgment and wrath. He would not condemn them to hell. And so um, there's a growing move, not, not only in, in pressure from the outside of the church, but growing move inside the church to accept the idea of universalism, universalism that God's it's going to save everybody, right? Um, and honestly, if we're, uh, if we're thinking people, uh, it is hard to reconcile those two things of God's character, that we know God is both loving and compassionate, that he has a love beyond what we can even imagine, and at the same time that he would so harshly and severely judge sin. Right? That's kind of a hard thing. And um, uh, so... As Jesus is is uh, kind of the, the background of this passage, you're here last week. We, it's it's really in the setting of the triumphal entry. Right? Jesus is making his final kind of grand entrance into Jerusalem uh, to begin the Passion Week. He's about to go to the the cross, and uh, as we talked about last week, Jesus orchestrates the events of this day so that it's very clear he's entering Jerusalem as her king. Uh, he's coming um, um, in this, this procession, this parade, and the disciples worship and celebrate him. But the Pharisees and the leaders make it clear that they are rejecting him as king. Right? They, uh, they want to put a stop to the parade. And so as Jesus is making this parade coming down the mountain, uh, the Mount of Olives down towards Jerusalem, this is what happens next, if you'll follow with me as we read uh, 19, chapter 1940 to 41. And when, G, and when he, Jesus, drew near, that is near, uh, and saw the city, Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Um, in this passage, you get an interesting mix of these two parts of Jesus' char uh, Jesus character, God's character, as, as he shows love for Jerusalem, but also foretells of this huge destruction that is about to come on the city. Uh, and in this, I think Jesus reveals something of God's heart. 
And I, I'm not going to pretend this morning to answer all the questions of how God can be loving and, and, and send people to, uh, to hell at the same time. And I certainly won't give an answer that you're going to be able to go out and say, hey, I heard this to your unsaved friends. Hey, I heard this in church. Here's the answer. And they'll go, oh, I get it now. Okay, that's not going to happen, right? But uh, in this, we do get something of God's heart in the midst of this, right? We get a picture of what, um, what it is for God himself to wrestle with uh, this tension in his own character. God is never divided. He's singular in his being. He is unified completely in who he is. So God's not divided, perhaps like we are. Uh, but there are things as we look at his character that seem to be somewhat opposed or working in opposite directions, right? As we see this, we see something of how God's heart works in Jesus. So let's unpack this a bit. Uh, uh, first of all, we need to understand clearly uh, Jesus' reason here for his weeping. Right? Uh, it says, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. So Jesus is coming as king. You've got to get the picture here. Jesus has orchestrated this parade we talked about last week. He's made it very clear that he's entering, coming into the city on his really final stop in his journey towards Jerusalem. And, um, and it's a big deal. And Jesus has made it a big deal. And uh, there's huge crowds, and they, his disciples are worshiping and celebrating his power and his work. Um, and, and so Jesus uh, enters the city as king. But even before he gets there, as he's in the midst of this parade, the Pharisees are criticizing, saying, you know, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Put a stop to this. This is not right because you are not king. And so they've made it clear, the, the, the leaders over and over again, that they will not have him as king. They will not receive or accept his rule over them. Right? They will not see Jesus in that role, in that light. In fact, we know that, and Jesus knows, that they will be so against his rule that they will actually go to the the furthest extreme to eliminate him. They will kill him. Right? They will attack him. And so Jesus knows that as he, as he faces the crosses. It's just days away. And um, so picture this. Sorry. Picture this as Jesus is coming into the city. Um, he, he knows he's going to the cross. He knows that he's about to show God the extent of God's love, he tells the disciples in John. The full extent of my love for you on the cross. Uh, he loves this city, and yet he knows full well that, for the most part, Jerusalem, as a representative for the nation and for all of its citizens, collectively, they are rejecting him. They will not have him. They do not believe in him. Uh, they will not receive him. Uh, how, how do you deal with, like, straight-out, flat-out rejection and betrayal? Right? Um, if, if uh, you have a very close and dear friend and through some misunderstanding or s through some problem, you know, that friendship is severed or, or you do something you're not even aware of, but they come out and just attack you, right, and they turn against you, how, how do you deal with that? Right? I tend to be pretty bitter and vindictive, right? I, might be, I, I may not be that way outwardly, but inwardly I'm like, Ugh. How, how dare they? After I've done so much for them, after I've given so much for them, to them, right? Or maybe you felt that way as you've gone uh, and come to Asia or wherever it is you do ministry and you've 
made great sacrifices to come here and you've uh, lived away from your family and you've given up good jobs and you've taken on the hardships of living in a foreign country and you have gone through the agonizing process of learning a language. Right? Anybody done that? It's like, and, and so you go ahead and you start sharing Jesus with people and they reject the message. Right? Maybe, they, maybe they actually persecute you. Right? How do you deal with that? Right? Um, you tend to feel, you know, well, fine then, just go to hell, right? Uh, maybe you don't say that, but maybe you feel that. Well, I gave you your chance, fine then, be that way, right? Well, um, it's amazing that in the face of, of complete rejection, complete rejection, right? Uh, Jesus does not respond that way, right? He does not say, Fine, you stupid city. Just wait till you see what's coming from your way, right? No, what Jesus does is he weeps over Jerusalem. Right? This is when, he draw, when he draws near and he saw the city. As you come down the Mount of Olives, you're really above the city. And so there's, there's places where the olive trees would, would break open and there would be clear, visible uh, view of the whole city. And as Jesus comes into one of those panoramic views, he's just moved with grief over Jerusalem and he feels the pain of loss and he cries for Jerusalem. The word there, weeps, you know, sometimes when I think of the word weep, weep can mean kind of the connotation of to, to, to shed a few tears quietly and silently. But that's not actually what this Greek, Greek word means. The Greek word here means to lament, to wail loudly, to cry out. And it's a cry that's not just general sadness, but it's, it's the sorrow that's the result of grief and loss. Right? It's grieving over something. It's what mourners would do. It's the kind of crying mourners would do at a funeral. And so Jesus breaks out in, in perhaps a loud wailing cry. Right? He's not just shedding a few tears. He is wailing and lamenting and grieving and mourning over the city that lies before him. And, and Jesus feels deeply the full pain of loss and uh, out, uh, outwardly lamenting uh, what's going to happen to the city. Well, in this, Jesus gives some very specific details, some very clear reasons of why he feels this way, of why he's so sorrowful. Uh, and he gives us some clues. First in verse 42, he says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Right? Uh, first of all, he grieves because they are ignorant about the way to peace. Right? He's grievous because of uh, what they are losing out on, uh, namely the salvation of God and the, res and the peace that would result through what Jesus was about to do on the cross. Um, and he, he uses a double double pronoun you, he says, you, even you. It makes it very emphatic. He's crying out over the city, these people who he loves. You, even you. He says, you don't know the things that matter. Right? You are ignorant of what this is all about. And he is realistic. He's, he's aware of the fact that they uh, will not know who he is. They've, re they've refused to understand that Jesus is sent from God uh, as as the disciples cried out, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the one who comes with power and authority from God sent by him on a special mission of salvation and redemption. 
they are ignorant of the way of peace. Um, and, and it's not that he, Jesus hasn't been working hard to make clear who he is, right? For the last three years, he's been traveling all over Jerusalem and, and Galilee and, and all over uh, Israel. Uh, as the disciples described in the previous verses, uh, demonstrating the power of God. He's been teaching, he has been pleading, he has been working to show them and to prove without, without doubt that he's God's son. In fact, uh, Luke doesn't give this, but we, we know that uh, Jesus is just coming from Bethany and he just, just raised Lazarus from the dead and everybody in, in Jerusalem knew about it, right? Okay, it wasn't like... You know, he wasn't clear about what he was doing here. But they would not know it. They would not accept. They chose to be willfully ignorant because they ignored the signs that God was giving. They didn't know because God had, not, had failed to explain it to them. They did not know because they ignored everything that Jesus had showed them. Who he is and what he's about. And it says they didn't know the things that make for peace. Uh, one of the issues going on here, one of the dynamics is that the, the Jews, especially the leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes and the, the elders of Israel, the leaders of Israel, lived in this constant state of fear that Rome would come and crush and destroy uh, Jerusalem. Right? And so they were always leery of, of zealots, of teachers like Jesus who would come along and claim, hey, you know, I'm the Messiah, let's have a revolution, let's overthrow Rome, right? So uh, one of the things that clouded their vision is they were worried that Jesus would be a troublemaker who would stir up the crowds and bring the wrath of Rome upon them. Okay, ironically, little did they know, right, what rejecting Jesus would bring upon them, as Jesus talks about in a minute. Um, and they misunderstood the fact that peace does not come from their own capacity and their own ability to protect the city from troublemakers. Instead, peace would come only through Jesus' death on the cross. They, they failed to see that. They failed to see all the scriptures in the Old Testament that foretold that this would be necessary. Because the main problem was not between Israel and Rome. The main problem was between who? Man and God. And the barrier of sin had to be overcome. And the only way that could be finally fully dealt with was, was through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. That alone would make peace with God. And then through that, once they had peace with God, they would have true peace with them. And from that, God would be able to give them true peace with the nations, true peace with the world. But they completely misunderstood and, and, and doubted all that and, and did not see it. They did not see the way of peace. Um, so, so Jesus is grieving what they are losing out on the path to peace and life with God. That they are missing out on the love and goodness that God was offering them in himself. Uh, if you jump down to 43, Jesus explains one more thing that they are missing out on. They're missing the way to peace. He also says it another way in verse 43. He says, you did not know the time of your visitation. Uh, the word visitation there is the same word in Greek that we get the word episcopal from. And like the Episcopal Church, and in, in, an episcopate, uh, an episcopos is, is an overseer, right? But in the context here, it doesn't really mean overseer as much as it means one who, who 
who comes as a leader, as, a, as, a, as an overseer, but comes to check things out, right? Uh, if, you, if you have a job where your, your, your boss is not, like, visibly resident, right, and they, they show up for a visit, uh, what's often the purpose of their visit? Well, they want to check you out, right? Are you doing the work? Are you doing what's required? Are you fulfilling and meeting all the obligations of our agreement, right? And that's the picture. Jesus says, you've missed your day of visitation. God comes and he visits his people, but he comes to look closely at the situation, to survey what's going on. And when God surveys, he always does something about what he sees. Always. Okay? God never shows up and says, oh, that's nice, and goes off, does nothing about it. He sees things and he reacts and he responds to it. So, for example, in the Old Testament in Exodus, when the uh, Israelites were in bondage and slavery in Egypt, uh, God says this to Moses, Go and gather the elders of Israel and say to them, Jehovah, the God of your fathers has appeared to me, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, Visiting, I have visited you. Okay, an awkward, say, a, awkward way of saying, I've showed up and I've visited you. Visiting, I have visited you and have seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up from the affliction of Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey. Right? So God showed up in Egypt and he saw what was happening and he responds to what he sees by deliverance. Right? So, so here in Jesus, Jesus himself is now visiting. God is visiting them in his son, which means he is getting a very close view of what's going on. Not just of what's going on with Israel as a nation, but what's going on in the condition and heart of mankind. Paul says that God sent his only son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Jesus is experiencing what it means to be human. And more than any time in history, God is knowing through firsthand experience the, the ravaging effects of sin. And God's going to do something about it. He is sending Jesus to the cross to deal with sin once and for all, finally and fully. But the Jews, uh, the people in Israel, the people in that city at that time, they did not know the time they were living in. They didn't realize the times of Jesus, uh, of God's visitation in Christ. Uh, so Jesus grieves in what they are losing, what they are missing out on. And, and Jesus indicates that they're missing out, and it's not something they're going to miss out on. It's something they have missed out on because uh, it's too late. Right? It's too late. Notice what he says at the end of verse 42. He says, Whether you even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from you. Right? Okay, God does not make his revelation, God does not make the opportunity to receive him available forever. Okay, there is a window of opportunity uh, and where God will present himself, where he will reveal, where he will extend the offer to receive him. Uh, and how long that window is, I don't know. And maybe it's different for every person. But there does come a time when you've missed it, when it is too late. And for that generation on that day in Israel, and not, uh, we should make clear this is not Israel forever, but that generation at that time, for those who heard Jesus' teaching, collectively, it was too late. 
So it is now, it is now hidden from you. There will be no more revelation to you because you are blind and you will not see it. And it's over. The day of decision has passed by and you have missed it. Uh, Now, of course, he's speaking there corporately for Jerusalem and Israel. We know on Pentecost that 3,000 people came to Christ, all all Jews, right? So individually, uh, praise God, there's still hope, right? But for the city of Jerusalem and for the nation of Israel, uh, their king is coming, and they have slammed the door shut. They have refused the way of peace. So what will come is going to be destruction. They've missed their chance. And so Jesus grieves for that. He he is heartbroken that they have missed it. And thirdly, the third thing that he is um, grieved about is that he knows what's coming. He knows that they are headed for destruction. Verse 43, For the days will come upon you, When your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will leave not one stone upon another in you. Jesus sees what's coming. And he grieves not only what is lost in the past in that opportunity, but also he grieves what is about to come about as a result of their failure in rejecting him as king. There are consequences. And Jesus sees the city and he knows that its days are numbered. In fact, just a short uh, 40 years or less after Jesus spoke these words, this prophecy was fulfilled. Uh, Jesus foresaw that Rome would one day come and they would surround the city and lay siege to it. Um, this all came about and it began in 66 AD when the Jews rebelled against Rome bad move and they actually were initially pretty successful they defeated some of the Roman uh, armies that were sent they got some confidence they got uh, some good Roman weaponry out of the deal Um, eventually they, they got the Roman fortress of Masada they got overly confident and they believed that they could overcome Rome but after a long lengthy four-year battle, uh, the Romans were eventually able to completely surround Jerusalem and cut off all food, all supplies, uh, and they waited them out. And just to make sure, it, to kind of speed up the process, one year at, when Passover came, they were very generous. And they said, well, you know, it's, it's, fast, it's Passover. It's an important holiday for you. Here's the deal. We're going to kind of back off a bit and allow you to celebrate Passover. Okay, so just like as Jesus is entering the city, it's the, it's the season of Passover, right? And during that time, they, uh, estimates from that time, writings from that time, estimate that as many as a million people would come into the city. Right? Of course, when it's surrounded by the Roman army, maybe a million didn't show up, but tens of thousands did. And they poured into the city to celebrate Passover, and guess what? Rome shut the door, and they did not let them escape. They weren't leaving, Right? So now they were already starving to death. Now the the population of the city is vastly more, and people were starving to death, and it was horrible. And uh, to make sure people didn't escape, they built another wall outside the main wall of Jerusalem. They built their own wall so that nobody could escape. 
And eventually they battered down the walls and they poured into the city. And after four years of being at war with the Jews and being beaten, the Romans were not very uh, civil in their attack of Jerusalem. They were brutal. They burned down the temple, they burned down the city, and they tore it to pieces. And they pulled down every stone until it was leveled, and they massacred its residents. If you want some good bedtime reading, Josephus was an eyewitness. He was a Jew captured by the Romans. He was an eyewitness of the destruction. He writes a graphic account of the murder and pillage as Rome swept through the city. And he describes uh, the city piled with bodies of the dead and the blood flowing through the streets like a river. Jesus saw that. He knew it was coming. Um, And he grieves for the inevitable judgment that must fall, for what he knew had to happen. And he is not glad or happy about that, right? He's not rejoicing, well, they're going to get what they deserve, right? No, he grieves, he weeps, he mourns over the unavoidable judgment. See, he knew that it was, it was necessary, it was unavoidable what would come. Because there's only one way to peace. There's only one path and one road to peace. And if you reject that road, then all other roads only lead to destruction, That's the reality of life. And so Jesus knew what would happen, and he's heartbroken by that reality. Well, that's a happy passage of Scripture, right? I'm sure you all have it, you know, cross-stitched on your wall, right? Um, Let me just pull a couple of thoughts together about what this tells us about the heart of God. And in, in this event, as Jesus weeps, as he mourns over Jerusalem, it's an interesting place where you see the love and the justice of God intersecting. Right? This interesting crossroads where, uh, where we've got to reconcile this God who's all-loving, whose love is perfect and generous, who's infinite in his love beyond what we can imagine, but who is at the same time just. So let's look at those two things real briefly and see how they intersect at this point in time when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Firstly, love. Uh, There's no doubt that God loves Jerusalem, Israel. Uh, I don't have time, but if you look through the Old Testament over and over again, God speaks of his great love for this city. Indeed, first and foremost, we got to, as Gentiles, as non-Jews, we need to know this. The first reason God sent his son was, was true for the world, but firstly, for the Jews, right? We only got in because the Jews kind of blew it, Romans tells us, right? We were grafted in because uh, they got lopped off, right? God's first love, his first program, his first plan was for Jewish people. He loved these people in this city. He longs, Jesus and, and God longs that they receive him as king. Okay, his love compels him to do this. But here's the truth about love. Uh, love must be freely chosen. Okay, love must be freely chosen. Now, Jesus could have entered as a king with such an army. I mean, he could have called the angel of heaven. He could have come in such a way that they opened the door to him as king, right? If Jesus had come with millions of angels and fiery chariots and, and the fierce wrath of God, the ground shaking and trembling and lightning bolts flashing... They would have fell, fallen to the ground and said, we worship you as king. 
But that worship and that allegiance would have come out of fear, not out of love. Right? And that is not what God wants. Right? He does not want a relationship with you and I that's based on fear. That's easy. He could pull that off. If God wanted to scare you to, you know, scare the life out of you, he could show up this morning and you'd all be dead and end of story, right? Uh, or you'd be, you know, so shaking on the ground that, you know, you crawl the rest of the way through the rest of your life in terror, right? That's not the relationship God wants with you. That is not the kingdom he wants, right? He wants a kingdom where people willingly and freely choose to give him his, their love, loyalty, and allegiance. Right? And so he comes to Israel longing that they would love him, right? that they would receive him willingly. Uh, but that kind of love requires a free choice. Um, the free and willing reception and submission um, of God. So because God loves them, he does not force them. Right? Um, and you see God's love in Christ as, as Jesus weeps over the city. Right? He loves these people. Um, but what about justice? Well, God is just. And, and the thing you've got to know is God is singular in his being. And what theologians mean by that is that God is not, like us, often divided. Right? He, he's, he's one, and everything about him fits together in perfect unity and completeness. So we talk about his love and his justice as different things, but the reality is that there's just one thing, right? There may be different sides of it, but God is what he is in singular unity. So for God, justice and love are not two separate things. They are one thing uh, coming out of him as he deals with people. And the truth is that there is no such thing as true love without justice. Okay, and if you're a parent, you get this. And if you're a parent and you don't get this, just ask any four-year-old, right? Because um, they will all tell you that love must be what? Fair. Fair, right? We've got to have justice, right? So imagine you have two children, two boys, let's say, and you shower one with, you all out for one, one, one son's birthday party, and you give him this extraordinary birthday party all out. And you shower him with gifts, and it's just like the most perfect all-out birthday party ever, right? But uh, you get busy, and kind of life gets you carried away. And when your other son's birthday comes along, you're so busy and so caught up with things, you actually forget his birthday, right? Right? Now, what's going to be the accusation? Mom, you're not just. My dad, you're not just. Or dad, you don't love me, right? Dad, you don't love me. You can't love me like my brother because why? Because you didn't treat us justly, right? You gave to one, you know, what, what, what was his rightfully his. I should have a right to the same treatment when I don't get it. It's a failure of love, right? But it's, it really is a failure of justice. Okay, so suppose, take it one step further, suppose the neglected child feels quite angry about this. So he just beats up his brother. I mean, he just pulverizes him. Just goes after him and just beats, just beats him, you know. Almost puts him in the hospital, right? Um, and, but you as a parent feel kind of guilty because you know why he's so angry, right? And, and you know that, uh, in a sense, he's kind of justified in his anger. So you don't step in and discipline or intervene at all. And you just, you just say to the beat-up brother, well, you know, he, he kind of feels bad because he, you know, he got left out. And I, and I understand, you know. You just need to understand, right? 
Um, is he going to be okay with that? No. He's going to go, I want justice, right? Especially if you just spanked him the day before for mouthing off at you, right? right? He wants justice, right? I want fair and equal treatment because love requires justice. Uh, today, it's sad. There's this idea going around that God can be loving Santa Claus, but he doesn't have to be just. It is impossible because that's not love. Right? Love it must be just. Right? Um, now, you can have a kind of justice that's void of love, but you can, you can never have true love that is void of treating people justly and fairly. Well, uh, so... So God must be just to be loving. And what that means is there are always consequences for our choices. Always. Right? Good people in justice should receive good consequences. If you do the right things, justice says you should get the just rewards, the, the right good out of that. If you do wicked things, there should be what? Punishment. There should be a price for that. That's justice, right? So if you're driving here this morning and you're going, you know, 200 kilometers an hour and a police officer pulls you over and gives you a ticket, it's justice, right? You're getting what you deserve, right? Um, Well, God is that way. It means uh, uh, love requires that people freeze truly. Love requires that people are allowed to freely choose. There we go. Choose freely. Um, justice requires that we must face the inevitable consequences of those choices. Okay? Love says you're free to choose. Justice says you get the, the consequences, the results of those choices are inevitable. They must come. Right? So if God is just, he must judge sin. He must judge sin. Right? He cannot, as a just and holy God, close his eyes blindly to any sin. Um, And and praise God that he he executed justice on the cross for us. So he's made a way to be both just and loving in the cross. In the cross, we receive God's perfect love and his perfect justice because Jesus paid the penalty for sin. Um, so God is just in forgiving us. But if you reject the cross, then you must bear the full consequences of your bad decisions. J- Jerusalem has rejected God. They've rejected the path of peace. Destruction must come. Right? Destruction must come. It's the only way. Right? So these two things meet together as Jesus stands and he realizes and recognizes they have rejected him. Um, and, and the result of all this is what? Well, the result is that Jesus feels incredible loss because he loves them and he longs for relationship with them. He longs that they would know peace with God and peace with him. But it will not happen. And Jesus realizes he is losing Jerusalem. He is losing this nation that he is to be king of. And the natural feeling that comes with that kind of loss is grief. 
Jesus is not in denial. He's not making up things and pretending that, hey, this is going to have a happy ending. Now he faces the truth and the reality of what's happening here. And he cannot help but feel the, the, the searing pain of loss and grief. Uh, to put it all into a nutshell, let me, let me put it this way. Uh, for a just God, operating where people have free will, all the love and power in his being cannot prevent God from losing what he loves. Let me say that again. Think about this. For a just God operating where people have free will, all the love and power he he can muster, all the love and power of his being can never prevent him from losing what he loves. And that's the problem. That's the problem. Um... The only alternative for God would be to operate on the basis of fear instead of love. Or to, uh, be, you know, to, to not be just. Um, we, we know from human experience what this feels like, right? Uh, all of us have, have loved someone who didn't love us back, right? Maybe it was seventh grade, had a crush on some girl, right? And she just blew you off, and you know you were just trash to her. Uh, I had I was teaching a class with Elizabeth at Piup this week, and for an illustration, here here's huge rejection, right? For for an illustration, I said I was trying to illustrate that freedom comes with limited choices. Right? So I said, so if I wanted to marry all the girls in this room, would that be okay? I was trying to show that you know when you choose to marry somebody, you're limiting that. So I said, would it be okay if I married all the girls in this room? Girl in the front row raised her hand. She says, no. I said, well, why? Because you're old. <laughs> yeah, thanks, right? I needed that. Yeah. Right. True, okay, good point, I get it. Right. But why else, right? I was 30 years younger and good looking, why else, right? Oh, well, because I don't want to marry, I don't want a guy who's married to everybody. I want a guy who's married to one, right? Um, even God deals with this. That's the point. God in all his power cannot help losing what he loves. And, and that's what love is. Right? When you love somebody and you give them freedom to freely choose to love you back, if they choose to walk away, you lose them. Right? You lose them. And it's painful. Right? It is painful. And if you felt that uh, kind of loss, you know. That you know. And no matter how much you love them, you can't stop them from walking away, right? Um, and if you try to, you know, if you try to force things, it just gets worse, right? You try to force them back, it just gets worse, right? They run the harder and the faster. And so what do you do with that? Well, what Jesus does with it is he cries, Right? He weeps for Jerusalem. He weeps for these people who he loves, but he's lost. Right? And in that, I think we, we see a glimpse of the heart of God. Right? Yeah, God judges sin, but it breaks his heart. Right? Uh, God grieves over what he loses when a lost person rejects him forever. And the opportunity is is gone, right? 
Um, is God loving? Yes. Does he send people to hell? He must. Right? He must let them walk according to their free will and choice. But it, but it grieves him. And, and I don't know what this looks like with God. And we've got to be careful. Uh, scripture is very careful to not talk a lot about the emotions of God. And so I don't want to go too far with this. Right? I don't think God is in heaven popping Prozac because he's depressed all the time. Right? Um, God in his being radiates with joy. And how that goes with his grief, I don't know. Right? I don't know. Um, but Jesus gives us a glimpse of something of the heart of God that we need to be mindful of. Real quick, three things we can do with that. We need to be people after God's own heart. And I think that means for us at least three things. First of all, we need to love people. Uh, It's much safer and pain-free to not love people, right? Uh, But we need to love people, and we especially need to love lost people. I mean, we need to love each other in the body of Christ, absolutely. But we also need to love lost people, We need to serve them. We need to give ourselves to them. We need to show them kindness, patience, and generosity, even though they drive us crazy, right? Uh, And, you know, lost people are not always very nice, but we need to love them. We need to have God's heart for them and love them as God does, even if they hate us and reject us and ignore us and mistreat us. Secondly, we need to proclaim an exclusive message, okay? It is not loving to water down the gospel message to make it popular. Right? And by, what I mean by an exclusive message is this. It means that you can only be saved through Jesus Christ and faith in what he's done on the cross. Scripture is clear about that. Right? And what it means is people who receive that message and by faith trust him will be saved. Those who reject that truth will not be saved. We, we need to be truthful when we present the gospel and let people know what's at stake. Right? It's dangerous to water it down to make it more popular because we know that its exclusivity uh, makes people mad. Right? And right now it's one of the things people hate about Christianity is we proclaim this exclusive message. Right? Well, we've got to proclaim that message. But third thing... Um, we don't need to ex- proclaim this exclusive message like jerks, okay? All right? Um, we need to have some humility and compassion as we do that. And one way to do that, this may not be a remedy, but it's an important check, is that uh, we need to practice this discipline of grieving for the lost, right? If we had this kind of heart towards people and we honestly... Um, mourned over those who are headed for destruction and grieve for them. I think, I think it would temper uh, and it would help hedge how we proclaim this exclusive message. Right? I'm not saying they'll still hate us. They probably will. Right? I'm not saying they may still charge us with, you know, how can you serve such a God? Blah, blah. Right? But I think if we have um, this kind of sense of grief over what's at stake, it will cause us to be humble and not arrogant as we plead with them for what's at stake for eternity. So be careful. Let's follow Jesus' example and ask God to give us his, his burden, his love, and his heart for lost people.
You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.